0: Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Back in Genesis for our time, and as I warned you, we are beginning quite slowly. Is it uh, troubling to you that it says Genesis 1, 2, part 1? Um, next, next week is actually going to say Genesis 1, 1 through 3, so it, it actually probably shouldn't say part 1 because I'm kind of going to, but it's going to be primarily Genesis 2 next week also. There's a lot to talk about today, though, and it's it's really relevant stuff, though. So um, I I I strongly encourage you to make sure this is on. Yep, we're on. Make sure that you put on your thinking cap here. I'm going to give you a lot of information. It's going to help if you're familiar with because today we're primarily talking about uh, we're we're actually kind of preaching a message. Not so much telling you what Genesis is saying as much as what it's not saying. And this is one of those few times where I really do need to dedicate a message to what, uh, what the Bible is not saying because of the, the vast number of people and theories surrounding Genesis chapter one, verse two. Um, Genesis 1 through 11, as we've talked about, is quite controversial, even among believers. It is the foundation upon which the rest of the Bible is built, and so it's foundational. It is thus going to be often attacked, often questioned. Um, It's going to set the tone and the worldview by which we understand the rest of the Bible. So it's a natural target for the devil. It's a natural target for false teachers. It's a natural target for confusion and being undermined. Also, God did not give us all of the information. And so when, in that God did not give us all the information, there are plenty of opportunities for people to fill in the gaps or to allow their imagination to run wild or to simply uh, be confused by the, the sheer amount of, of what's not there. And we are going to come to one of those controversies, controversies today um, only considering this one verse, and in in one sense, just a part of this verse, but I'd like to read verses 1 and 2 for context. The Bible says this, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. I'm actually only going to focus in on this idea, and the earth was without form and void. Last week we considered together the creation of time space and matter. I hope that you were able to follow that. It seemed like everyone that I talked to that that it made sense, and it's going to need to make sense in order to to build upon it today, recognizing that time is when matter is put and space is where matter is put, and so they're a continuum. They all needed to come into existence at the same time in order for any of it to make any sense. If you did not have um, time come into being, then then when are you going to put the matter? If you didn't have space come into being, then where are you going to put the matter? It all had to happen at the same time. And the matter in question, as we see in verse one and two, is earth, right? Uh, Within that that interpretation, the heaven would be the space and the earth would be the matter. And this is the matter in question. After the creation of this matter, verse two tells us that the earth was without form, and void. And it is here that we fall into the controversy, with the primary culprit of this controversy being the translation of that little Hebrew word, was. The earth was without form and void, a statement which speaks to a blank slate of sorts with an emphasis upon disorder in contrast to order, an emphasis upon chaos. Now, the stated reason for this controversy is because this Hebrew word was like so many Hebrew words, is actually quite broad and ambiguous. Thank God he did not use Hebrew to write the New Testament. The New Testament is full of very specific doctrinal ideas, and Hebrew is not a very specific doctrinal language. It is a language that is very broad. It's ambiguous. There's a lot of, uh, when, when, when you have a word, it's deeply connected to its context. Uh, it can mean a, a, a tremendous number of different things. And that's the case with this Hebrew word to be, which is the word hayah, used 72 times in the Old Testament to mean both to be and to become. But that isn't all. Within the scope of the King James Bible, the word is actually translated be, become, come to pass, break, cause, faint, and fall. Now, all of these things generally have, uh, you could perhaps think about how they can all be worked into one kind of context or idea that that this word is intended to express, something that has come to be or something that is. But this ambiguity has left the door open for various theories regarding the state of this formless and void earth, with some contending that the text should actually be translated that uh, that the earth became without form and void rather than the earth was without form and void. And this is a very, very common interpretation of this verse, that the earth became without form and void. Many preachers preach it this way. Uh, many people, when they read commentaries, the commentary state it this way. And that would change things quite a bit, wouldn't it? If it is the earth became without form and void, the question is, what was it before it was without form and void? And we could pretty easily work it in our minds, okay, it, was, it, it wasn't, and then it became, and as it became, what it became was without form and void. But of course, that's, that's only one of many ways that this could be explained. And this change has led to a series of claims that we could generally organize into a theory that is called the gap theory. And the idea of the gap theory, it can be traced back generally to the writings of a Dutchman a Dutchman's name was Episcopius, and, and he was in the, this was in the early 1600s, and, and, and he proposed this idea that between Genesis chapter one verse one and Genesis chapter one verse two, something happened, and it created a condition upon the Earth. The most influential proponent of this idea, the book was actually written in 1884 by a man named G. H. Pember. It was called "Earth's Earliest Ages." And he's the one that truly formalized the suggestion that there's a gap of time between Genesis 1:1 and Genesis 1:2, and that something happened within that gap of time that created a formless and void earth, a chaotic earth. So influential was this book, in fact, that even if, you, if you've got an old Schofield Bible. And a lot of people in our circles have that old Schofield system. And you turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and you look at the footnote. The gap theory is in the footnote of the old Schofield Bible because they were trying to figure out what to do with the Darwinian theory of evolution. They were trying to figure out what to do with, with all of what Science, right? And we all know what science is today. Science is becoming a big thing. Uh, for those of you listening, I'm putting scare quotes around science. Trust the experts, right? We all know how that goes. And, and science, so-called, was saying that the earth had to happen. Everything came into being without question in a certain way. And, of course, theology then had to contend with, well, they don't know science, so they're trusting them, just like they would hope that the, those scientists would trust the theologians, as it relates to theological things, and they were trying to reconcile those things, and the gap theory found its way into the old Schofield Bible. Now, depending on who you talk to, listen to, the ideas behind the gap theory can be very widely divergent. But the essence of the theory is that between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and between Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, there was a period of time in which things happened of which the Bible does not tell us, and whatever those events were, they led to the earth being in this state. Without form and void, chaos. And as you can imagine, this opens the door to all manner of speculation as to what that might have been like. Many have sought to use this gap to reconcile, as the old Schofield system did, the biblical account with the modern humanistic theory of Darwinian evolution. And so they would say that, well, between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, as the earth became without form and void, those were billions of years of all of the um, the, the Big Bang and the primordial soup and the, the, the single-celled organism becoming uh, a, a more um, complex, uh, multi-celled organism. And then, uh, then, you know, out of the water came the animals and all of that, right? And, and so they, they stick Darwinian evolution into that, that gap. Others have sought to use this gap to account for the fall of Satan and the fall of the angels, into the, the the one third of the angels into following Satan, the, the demons. And they say that it was within that gap between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 that the angels fell, or perhaps were created also and fell, or maybe they were already preexistent. We'll talk about some of those things. This would set the stage for the cosmic battle, which existed prior to our creative context. So the battle between God and Satan actually existed prior to to Adam and Eve, and prior to the fall of man, and prior to the creation account, others simply like to leave the door open. Maybe between Genesis 1 and 2 was another civilization, an entirely other earth, an entirely other um, timeline, right, sort of idea. Often with an eye toward the end of our own story, with many believing that the judgment of man in Revelation... In that, God will do the same thing in Revelation that he did between Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. They say that there was a civilization, that it was evil, and that God thus destroyed the earth, judged the earth, destroyed the earth, melted it with a fervent heat, and created this formless and void state in which God then rebuilt another creation. So there's all of these theories that go around. Very interesting. And if I'm introducing these to you for the first time, I'm not trying to do so to confuse you. But as I said, and I'm not going to talk about a bunch of the different spurious interpretations, but this one is big, or different spurious theories. This one, however, is all over the place. And I have a lot of people, whether it's in the jail when I'm counseling, I have people that, that come up to me and ask me about this theory. So I, I'm going to spend the entire time today addressing this theory. So let's think through things together. On the one hand, yes. At any given time, the scriptures, uh, as we understand them, are missing things. So, missing is the wrong word. God left a bunch of stuff out, right? There's a great deal of things that God chose not to tell us, He chose to leave out plenty. And it is wholly within God's right, of course, to do whatever he will, both with us and after us and anywhere in between. It's perfectly within God's right to have had a bunch of stuff happen that he chose not to tell us from history and that he chose to leave out, even if they did in some way, shape, or form affect the earth as we know it. But there are major problems with any sort of a gap theory. And that's what I want to help you understand today is that any sort of a gap between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. No matter what you put into that gap, if it took any matter of time, more than just a few minutes, (laughs) that gap does not work biblically. And I want to show you why. And I am going to hit a couple of the individual theories themselves. Of course, there's too many for me to hit them all. And then I'm going to give you a broader understanding of why it is that gap does not work. If you'd like to discuss, explore the, the discussions around any of the Specific and individual theories that you understand and that you might be interested in or that you might have committed to or whatever the case may be, I invite you and encourage you in fact to come see me individually on those things. Uh, I also encourage you, if you are confused about these things, to seek out other resources and a very good place for this as it relates to biblical creation is the Ministry of Answers in Genesis. Answers in Genesis is an apologetics ministry. They're not, if if you're looking for the the pure science of creation science, they're not the best ministry to go to. There are others that that are significantly more rigorous on the science end. Answers in Genesis is significantly more apologetic. So what they're doing, they're evangelistic in focus. So they try to keep things a little bit more basic, uh, but they give good answers to a lot of questions. So I'd encourage you to, to, to pursue some of those on Answers in Genesis' website if you would like to seek to more resources on this. They do have a very good staff of scientists and theologians that are dedicated full time to speaking on the issues surrounding Genesis chapters 1 through 11. But allow me to speak generally. And I believe the most important of these um, is to speak to this idea of the language. Usually. When, um, in my experience, in the order of operations surrounding honest Christians who are looking into this topic, um, it it begins with a questioning of the interpretation or the translation of this passage surrounding this little verb, was. I'm not talking about Christians who are being disingenuous or those who are, are trying to reconcile humanism into the Bible but I'm talking about Christians who are honestly trying to understand the Bible and they're going places and they're looking for answers. And this issue of the translation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, with many teachers insisting not just that the translation, the earth became without form and void, is valid or possible, but they insist that it is essential to the text, unambiguously correct, I want to speak to that. Now, I am not one typically in my preaching to fall back upon or to appeal to the original languages as, my, uh, as the natural course of my preaching. Uh, we talk about it on Tuesday nights quite a bit more. Um, those of you that, that know me know that I know Greek quite well. I do not know Hebrew nearly as well. Um, but the reason why I don't like to appeal to the original languages is twofold. First, we do have a very reliable translation and you speak English, not Greek. But second, you don't know the original languages. And this puts me in a place where I can make any claim I want and effectively insist that you have to trust me that those claims are true, because I know the original language and you don't. And that sounds very Catholic to me, except they did it with Latin rather than with Greek, right? (laughs) that you're not allowed to or you can't know your Bible unless you know the Latin. And so they would train their priests in the Latin and then the priests would be the ones, and particularly those who are higher up, and they would be the ones to interpret and then they would hand down their, their interpretations from on high and then insist that you have to believe me because you don't know the original languages and that you can't trust your Bible. Instead, you must come to me and I will open the scriptures and I will tell you what they say from the original languages. And because you don't know them, you have no recourse to argue with me about whether or not it is true, which puts me in a position of power over you that I don't want and that I don't even believe exists. I'm not interested in that. And so that's why I don't often bring the original languages into my preaching formally because this is such a strong part of the argument, however, that these gap theorists use, the Hebrew argument, I want to show you a few things. And I'm not going to show you these, these things directly related to what the, he, what, what the Hebrew means. Anybody can open the, the, their Strong's Concordance and find a, Hebrew, a word and, and, and tell us what the definition is. But when it comes to the original languages, what I have found, especially in Hebrew, and maybe it's just because I don't know Hebrew that well, the, the vast value of me going back to the original languages has not actually been that I'm so intimately familiar with the structure of the text and whatnot that it makes a difference. There are a few places, and I've shown you some of those in Greek where that happens. All of them are pretty well translated into our King James Bibles, though. But more specifically, if you go and you look at these words or these phrases and see how they're used in other places, the way that they are used in other places helps narrow the field on what the Bible means when it says something. So let's talk about this idea. Hebrew is a language of context. I cannot stress this enough, meaning that you must hold the word, whatever word it is, in its context in order to apprehend it properly because as we've seen already, any given word can truly have multiple meanings that can even seem quite disconnected from one another in the English thinking mind. And when it comes to this verb that we've been talking about here, was, haya, in the cow, which is uh, neither here nor there as far as you're concerned, it means to be or to become. Now it's argued by gap theorists that of the various times where this verb is used in the Old Testament, only a few of them. Uh, the, the, a very few compared to the vast number of times it's used, only a few of them can be properly translated to be. And it, it is very unlikely because it's translated to be so few times that in this context it should be was rather than became because it's translated became significantly more often. But again, that, that's not a good argument because it negates this thing called context. Well, what if this was one of the few times where it needs to be translated was instead of became, right? I can't argue, well, because it's not translated became very often that it's not translated, or because it's not translated was very often that it shouldn't be translated was here. That's a bad argument. So let's look at the context together. I actually don't even want to focus on that word was because it's so general. It's used so often. It's, it's just the be verb. I want to focus on the next phrase here, without form and void. This is the context. And when we look into this context, what we find is something very, very interesting. I'm going to have to give you a little bit of a Hebrew lesson for you to to understand it. And again, I I don't expect you to remember this, but I think when you see it, you'll get where I'm going with it. So this phrase, formless and void, without form and void, excuse me, tohu vabohu is the, the Hebrew here. These two words, tohu and bohu, with the the and in between, tohu bohu, are used together in two contexts other than this in the Old Testament, Isaiah 34, verse 11, and Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. And if we go to specifically that Jeremiah passage, what we find is that that Jeremiah passage is using tohu bohu. In the exact same, not, not just in the exact same structure, but it's actually referencing the, creating, the creation account. So Jeremiah is using it, and effectively he's quoting Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23 says this beginning in verse 22 For my people is foolish, they have not known me, they are soddest children, and they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. So God is appealing to the time when he created the earth, and he beheld it without form and void before there was light, right? Because light has not been created yet. Light is chapter, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And this is Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So God is referencing this time. Now, what is fascinating about this in context, and this is where we see something very important here. It's, oh no. Oh no, I don't have the Hebrew, the Hebrew uh, um, font on this. That's a, that's a bunch of gibberish. That's not supposed to be gibberish. That's supposed to be Hebrew, but I don't have the Hebrew font installed on this computer. That's a bummer. Okay, I'm going to have to explain this now without that. I don't have that computer connected. Um, This is going to get tricky. Let me see, do I have the word on here? I don't. OK, let's let's try to make this happen. For those of you, I'm going to get rid of that slide because that's ugly. For those of you that have, have been here on a Tuesday night, one of the things that you know from, from uh, ancient languages is that the, when, when, when the language was being written, it was not always required to actually put in a being verb. Uh, the, the verb would be what we call an implied verb, right? So you would have a sentence written out, and the sentence would say, and this is where this would come in, so in the, in, the, in the translation, and lo, it was without form and void is what you would have in the translation. But if you were to read the Hebrew directly, and when you read Hebrew, you read from right to left. So it would say, and, and these arrows were pointing to Hebrew words, and lo, formless and void. There is no being verb in this in, in this this context, now there is in Genesis, but there's not in Jeremiah, which means God expected and Jeremiah expected and, and the reader to supply the verb in their mind, and this is common this is very, very common. they would do that to save space, right uh, it was, it, there was not a lot of parchment, there was not a lot of Writing implements, writing was expensive, writing was hard to come by. If you could skip a, ver- a word and things would still make sense, you skip the word. And one of the things that was regularly skipped was this being verb. But here's the thing. In this context, they skip the be verb. It's supplied. And, and that's, that is what it is. But, but let, me, let me ask you this. If you were to supply a verb here, there is nowhere in the context of any language where you would supply anything other than was. That is the implied verb. It would be the implied being verb. It would not be an implied become, it would be an implied be. It was without form and void, not it became without form and void. And so the fact that God did not add the verb here and he he allowed it to be a implied or a supplied verb lends itself to the interpretation of was, not became. The implied verb would never be it became. The implied verb would be it was. Now, this is not an open and shut case because it can be contended that Genesis was describing the historical process while Jeremiah is describing the emphasis of the final state. But let me say this about it, and I'm really sorry that that didn't uh, show up properly. I'm, I'm not attempting in our time together to give you an open and a shut case as to why our interpretation is correct. But what I hope to give you is several pieces to the puzzle that, when put together, give us a tremendous confidence that we're not... In, in a, that, that we are in a very secure place in our interpretation that there is no gap between Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis 1-2. And in that, there's so much confidence within these gap theorists that that verb ought to be translated became. What we can see from this simple Hebrew example is a reason why it actually lends itself to not being became, but rather just to it was a state of being. Now we add to this argument a little bit more, and again, just a little bit more about. um, um, uh, No, I'm not ready for that verse yet. Just a little bit more about this. uh, This first, the first of those two words, tohu va-bohu. That word tohu. That word tohu is the word that means without form. It's found 19 times in the Old Testament, and the unique characteristic of this word is that it is never connected in its context to something being laid waste. It's always connected with something that is nothing, non-existent. It, 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 is, it is empty. So I give you Isaiah 40, verse 17 as an example here. The Bible says in Isaiah 40, verse 17, all nations before him are as nothing. This is the word Khasab. And they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. And there's our word tohu. Tohu is connected here with this idea of nothing. And it's really interesting because that word nothing, that word chasab means fake or non-existent. Something which is a, 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 um, a forgery or, or a fake or is not true. And then the Bible uses this word tohu as an emphasized or a heightened form. Less than nothing and tohu, vanity. <coughs> this is not implying a state of, uh, of, of um, a, a, the end of destruction where something has been torn down and lays in rubble, where there has been a judgment and now it is the, the uh, end of a, of a judgment, this is actually connected significantly more with the idea of nothingness, of a completely empty and a blank slate. To that end, while yes, it's possible, to read into Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the idea that the earth became formless and void, because that word, the verb, does allow it. Used in context, it certainly does not lend itself to that. It much more lends itself to the idea of the earth was as a state of being formless and void. Okay, so that's the textual argument. Done with, done with Hebrew. I hope that um, it can help you if you come across someone who tries to make the argument, the, the, the language argument. I don't expect you to remember that, but at least, if nothing else, uh, you won't be troubled by their claim because you know that there's a good explanation from the Hebrew as to why it is that that claim is not valid. So we come back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and there are other problems with the gap theory, and I want to address these. First put in the context of what we considered last week in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 about God creating space, time, and matter, the implication of there being a gap between verse 1 and verse 2 implies that anything that happened between them, chapter 1 and chapter, or verse 1 and verse 2, happened within the context of our space, time, and matter. Right? Within the context of our timeline, if we want to put it that way. Our universe and our timeline. Anything that happened between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, because the Bible says in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, it happened within our timeline and within our universe. And this is troubling. Now, I'm not going to get into a debate about whether there could be alternate timelines and all of that. This introduces theological questions which are not just beyond the scope of Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, but are actually generally unprofitable for us to think about. uh, Unless you're an apologist, don't waste your time. But do consider with me the implications of there being a series of events that exist within our time and within our space, the universe as we know it, Prior to the six days of creation found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, or initiated in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and following. First, that means there was potentially another creation. Whether we we regard that creation as just the angels, or whether we regard it as entire civilizations we know at least that time, space, and matter all existed because that was Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And coming out of this period was a formless and a void earth, so the earth must have played some role in the events of that time, right? The earth must have had something to do with it or else the earth would not be formless and void if it was previously populated. It wasn't just a spiritual battle in the heavens or something like that because the earth played a role. Right? So it had some sort of material stakes. Say, well, Pastor, what's the problem with that? Why would that matter? Well, here's the thing. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10, God was giving the nation of Israel the Ten Commandments. And as He did so, He reflected His character to them. And He said that one of the ways that He was going to reflect this to them was in the structure of the Sabbath day, right? God established by law, the Sabbath day. So Exodus 20 gives us the Ten Commandments, and the fourth of those commandments we read in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 8. The Bible says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy sons, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservants, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Okay, so God is establishing these rules, and it is these Sabbath rules where no one does any work, and and then he appeals to something in verse 11. He says, for in six days, notice this, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Did you see what just happened there? In six days, God said, and he's appealing to these six days to be the very foundational argument for the work week, for the day of rest, for his character in the day of rest. What did he say he did in six days? Did he say light and everything after light? He said the the earth, the heaven and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. The sea, that's Genesis 1-2. And all that in them is. That's Genesis 1-3 and following. Which means when God says, when the six days of creation started, he goes back to Genesis 1-1. He does not go back to Genesis 1-3. The six days of creation began at Genesis 1-1. Exodus 20 states that. God stated that on the mount himself. And he used it to appeal to his Sabbath and to the very elemental structure of his design. So everything was created in six days. And unless we want to contend, by the way, that the angels exist outside of our timeline of time, space, and matter, that means the angels must have been created within that six days too, because the Bible says he created everything that in them is. And we'll talk more about that in a few moments. But what we find then is that God specifically states that the heaven, the earth, and the seas were created in those six days. This would directly contradict the idea that between Genesis one one and one two there is a gap of time. It cannot be. It does not work unless there's a contradiction in our Bibles. And if we decide that there's a contradiction in our Bibles, then we need to boil. We need to. We need to go down a few more layers of foundational doctrine and establish the fact that that's not true. Right? That there are not contradictions in our Bible. We need to talk about, preser- that, that's an argument for inspirational preservation, uh, for inspiration, preservation, and, and, and the like. So we, we see that here. Well, what else? What else you got for me, Pastor? I know I'm going at a pretty fire hose pace here, but stick with me. Once again, I in- and stress the importance of the fact that this supposed gap exists within our space, time, and matter as we live today. And the reason why I stress this again is because at the end of God's creative work on the sixth day, he says something very, very consequential, not just to this argument, but to the whole understanding of the Bible and its history and what we're doing here and why we're here and what God's doing and what God will do at the end. And we read that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. The Bible says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So God saw everything as it existed, and he called everything as it existed that he had made very good. Now, this is a declaration from God. This includes, as Genesis 1-1 presents it, time, space, and matter. And it was all very good. If sin was present in the world at this time, or death was present in the world at this time, some gap theorists would say sin was already there. If, if Satan had already fallen, then sin existed, Right? Other gap theorists would say, no, not sin, but definitely death. Well, we'll talk about that more in a minute. If death or sin existed, either through some destruction or because of some judgment or because of the fall of Satan, there's no way that God could look at that creation and call it in his eyes very good. That would be contradictory to his character. If the gap between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2 was a gap of billions of years whereby evolution was taking place through, through the principles of survival of the fittest, where the weak were dying, they were diseased and they were weak and they were dying and the strong were destroying the weak and the earth as we know it was built upon, the, the, upon death and destruction, the bones of the, of the weak. God could not call that very good. that's that's not very good. The evolutionary, the Darwinian evolutionary process of survival of the fittest is anything but very good. Thank God we don't live by that as humans. Imagine if we lived by survival of the fittest as as humans. It would be chaos, anarchy, destruction. But things get even messier than that. Because if death had already entered into our time, our space, and our matter, either through the process of death before um, uh, death and destruction demanded by Darwinian evolution, or through satanic rebellion, so much so that the earth was destroyed in the fight or whatever it might have been or had been judged by God during this gap of time, some other civilization, or, or, or even with uh, anything, anything within our timeline at all, then death existed... And possibly sin existed also. And if that's the case, then once again, we have a contradiction in our Bible. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Verse 18, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. If death existed before sin... then then death did not come by sin. Sin did not bring death. Death predates sin. And if death predates sin, then Christ paying for our sins cannot overcome death for us. Right? Sin, Christ paying for my sin, cannot overcome death if death is not a result of sin. The whole point of Romans 5 is that death is the result of sin, Therefore, if Christ comes and deals with sin, he can also deal with death. And if that is indeed the case, if sin did in fact come into our timeline, so let's say, okay, okay, pastor, you you got me there. So then sin brings death, but death existed, which means sin existed before our creation. Solve that problem. Okay, now we've got another one. That means that sin predates Adam In in our context. That, 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 that sin existed in not just time and space, because we know that, because Lucifer sinned before Adam, right? But brought it into matter because matter was destroyed on the basis of something, right? Judgment came into matter. And if, and if Adam was not the progenitor of sin in God's creation, so that creation was touched by the effects of sin before Adam fell to sin, Once again, then Christ coming in the form of a man doesn't matter because the man did not bring sin into creation. So Christ coming as a man to undo what Adam did as a man would not undo all of sin upon creation. It would only touch man. And then once again, everything that we understand from the word of God as it relates to God's plan falls away. It crumbles beneath our feet. Christ effectively undoing Adam's sin would not undo all sin It would not undo all the effects of sin upon creation because sin had touched creation prior to Adam. And that just does not work. To this end, if you believe that sin and or death existed in our timeline, in our time, space, and matter prior to Adam's fall, then Jesus becoming a man, living a perfect life, dying on the cross to bear the sin of the world doesn't actually solve the problem. And the Bible tells us that Christ solved the problem which means that does not work. And this is where a theory, which you might say, well, pastor, why does it matter? Why why do you have to devote an entire sermon to this? You're confusing people and whatever else. Why does it matter? Well, this is where ideas have consequences, right? Because it doesn't really matter to me in theory that you believe that something happened between Genesis chapter one, verse one, and Genesis chapter one, verse two. But the problem is, is that if you actually believe that, then you can't also believe Genesis chapter 20, verse, verse 11. If you also believe that, then you can't actually believe Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and 18. And now we do have problems. Because now you're saying other parts of the Bible are wrong. And this one particularly threatens the very purpose of the gospel and redemption and everything. You say, well, just believe on Jesus. Yes, I can believe on Jesus unless sin and and death predate Adam. Then then, Then believing on Jesus doesn't do anything for me. So believe on Jesus crumbles under the weight of that. The foundation has been destroyed. And everything that was built upon that foundation now makes no sense. Ideas have consequences. And the ideas found in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 have as major consequences as any other place in the Bible, specifically because the concepts found in these verses, in these first chapters, formed the basis for the word as it exists, for what God has told us about, for why it matters. Now, there's one more idea I want to address with this gap theory. Um, And that's the idea that Satan and the angels fell prior to, either within this gap or even prior to this gap and, and the the formless and void had something to do with Satan and God fighting or something to that effect. Um, The angels, so the idea here would be that um, either Satan, he existed here somehow, either he was created here, he existed before Genesis, the angels existed prior to our time, even possibly the angels existed prior to our time, space and matter being created, and so existed entirely out of time, space and matter. And you say, well, that's possible, right? So maybe Satan exists out of our time, space, and matter, in which case um, he wouldn't have been affected by it and and sin wouldn't have come into our time, space, and matter through him, right, because he's not in it. And um, I guess I don't know how they'd explain the earth being formless and void still, but um, maybe, maybe you could figure it out. And I believe that this is not only incorrect as well, but again, I think it's theologically dangerous. Why might we believe this to be the case? Why might we believe? Why would someone believe, biblically, there's a good ar- why would there be a good argument for the idea that the angels preexist the creation? Well, the good argument for this is actually found in Job 38. In Job 38, God is talking about creation, and he says this in verses 4 through 7. He's talking to Job. He says, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So God asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And as he describes the laying of the foundation of the earth, he says that at this time, at the time that the foundation of the earth was being laid, the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, when God speaks, when we see in the Bible the speaking of the morning stars and the sons of God, we find that it is generally speaking a statement for the presence of angelic beings. I'm going to argue when we get later on in, in Genesis uh, whatever it is, 8, 9, whenever, wherever the sons of God come up and the daughters of men that the sons of God in that context are not angelic beings. I'm going to argue that point when I get there and now I've just distracted some of you for the rest of the sermon. But... Um, I'm going to argue that that that's a place where we do not see that. But as a general rule, the sons of God and the morning stars, this is is a, a reference to the angelic beings. It tells us that the angelic beings were singing at the laying of the foundation of the earth, And in that God created the heaven and the earth as a part of the first day of creation, that means the angels were present on that day, though they're not explicitly mentioned as having been created. And this is a good point and leads many to believe that, in fact, they were created prior to this creation. And here's my reply to that. First, as is common among angelic beings, they're associated in Job with light. The morning stars, uh, they're associated with light. Angels are often associated with light. Say the, um, even Satan, right? His name Lucifer means light bringer. He's associated with light. In Revelation chapter twelve verse four, when we talk about the, the reason why we believe one third of the angels followed Satan into his rebellion is because of cha- Revelation chapter twelve verse four. And in Revelation chapter twelve verse four, um, the Bible says that one third of the stars fell from heaven. And we interpret those stars to be angels that followed the dragon out of heaven when he was cast out of heaven. And so we, we, it is very common interpretively to, to uh, believe that stars are, not the stars that are in the sky, those are balls of gas, but that, that the stars, when the Bible speaks of them, are actually speaking of angelic beings. And that's a good point. But... Um, Where am I going with this? Okay, so angels are, are closely associated with light. And if we take Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, literally, everything, including the heaven and the earth, were created within six days. Which means that either the angels were created on day one, or they were created prior to our time, space, and matter. So... Let's think about that. First, let's say they were created on day one. Well, what does the Bible say was created on day one? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So we know the heaven and the earth were created on day one, if if Exodus 20 is correct, right? And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. So the seas were created on day one because the waters were there, and Exodus 20 says that God created the heaven, the earth, and the seas, and all that in them was. And then chapter 1, verse 3, also speaks of the first day, and it says this, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Okay, so angelic beings are associated directly in the scriptures with light. Lucifer's the light bringer. Light. Now, on this basis, we'll find in verse 5 that he designates the, the light day and the darkness he calls night. And so we understand that there's actually a physical basis to this, right? But here's the interesting thing. The sun, the moon, and the stars, to rule the day and the night, were not, are not created until day 4. So the light was created on day 1, but the sun, moon, and stars were created on day 4. So there's no reason why the morning stars, these light bringers, these light emitters, could not have been created on the first day and sung as the foundations of the earth were laid, because it was all the first day. God created them on the first, God created light, and we know that that light is not the sun and the moon and the stars, because that's day four. God created light on day one, and a part of that light very easily could have been the angels, because they are the morning stars. Lucifer is the light bringer. They are light, whatever that means. We don't know what it means that angels are light, except that they are light. And to that end, it's no problem. No problem to believe that the angels were created and they were able to be singing as the foundations of the earth were laid. So that's not a problem that we have to reconcile per se. But there is a problem with the idea of the angelic beings being outside of the context of our time, space, and matter, if they existed prior to the heaven and the earth being created. So in the beginning, prior to the beginning, prior to God creating our timeline and everything else that's involved with it. And this is an argument that depends very strongly upon my argument last time. Do you remember how last time we were together I taught on the implications of God being outside of our time and space and matter? Now I'm going to make an argument here based upon that. The Bible does not say in Genesis 1:1, "In the beginning, God created time, space, and matter." I hope you recognized last week that when I told you that God created time, space, and matter in Genesis 1:1, that I that it was a philosophical argument, right? That I was making a a philosophical argument for the existence of time, space, and matter found there because beginning heaven and earth. Now, maybe, just maybe, that's not all of what Genesis 1-1 was trying to say. And if that's not all of what Genesis 1 and God had already created time, space, and matter, then this doesn't matter. But if what I said last week was true about Genesis 1-1, and I I think philosophically there's a really good argument that, the argument that I gave is solid at, at least. If not foolproof, it's solid. We said that because God is not bound. And and remember, I I made many claims based upon the fact that God exists outside of our context. And I said, because God exists outside of our context, he is thus eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. And we can actually draw out those characteristics of God on the basis of the fact that God is outside of our context of time and space and matter. Well, let me ask you this. If Satan is outside of our time, space, and matter, if he was created outside of that context as well, so that he is not bound by our time, our space, or our matter, which doesn't even make sense because he'll occupy the lake of fire in our time, space, and matter for eternity. But if he is not bound by our time, space, and matter, well, then what does that say about Satan? Satan is also then omnipresent. He also exists outside of that context of time. He also can see all things at once, right? anything that would exist outside of our time, space, and matter, but that interacts with our time, space, and matter, would be unbound by it. That's not what we believe. We believe that Satan is finite, that Satan is created, and that he is not just a created being, but that he is a created being who is bound to Our rules, not not, not our physical rules, but the, the rules of the spiritual, right? That he cannot read our minds, he cannot see the future, he cannot see the past. He does not exist everywhere at once. He is not omnipresent, he is not omniscient, he is not omnipotent. And in fact, we know he's not omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent because the Bible tells us such. So it would not make sense that he would exist outside of the context of our time, space, and matter, but be interacting with it if indeed the fact that God is eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent uh, can be inferred from the fact that God is outside of our system. So I've built argument on top of argument on top of argument there. But it makes sense to me. So, you know, there's that. So so on the first day, we we see God create light. And, And we see... Uh, light being, it's perfectly consistent for us to believe that Satan and the angels were built, were made on that day. The Bible says Lucifer, among the angels, is a created being, that he goes to and fro throughout the whole earth that he is not omniscient, he does not know everything, he does not know the end from the beginning, but more so we believe that Satan will be judged within our timeline, that Satan will one day occupy a literal space within the context of time, space, and matter called the lake of fire, which means Satan must be bound to our context of time, space, and matter. And if Satan is bound by it, then it stands direct, and he was created within it. And if he was created within it, then according to Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, he was created within those six days. Because that's where everything was created. The heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. And by the way, do you remember me saying a while ago, Uh, that it isn't really worth our time to consider the concepts of other timelines and universes. Today, it's called the multiverse theory and such. And maybe some of you are dissatisfied that I'm not going there, but if you follow what I said about Satan just now, apply that same standard to Jesus as the second person of the Godhead. He entered into our timeline through being born by the Virgin Mary. He took on flesh. He bound himself to our time, space, and matter, not just temporarily, but eternally. And many of your questions about alternate timelines and answers will come close to a much more doctrinally consistent idea because God, the God of the Bible, is now bound eternally through the second person of the the Trinity, which is what we're talking about next week, the Trinity. He is now bound to our time, space, and matter for eternity because he's a man, the second person of the the Trinity. So all of these things we've considered. This is the sum of them. I sought through this message to speak to a common interpretive disagreement among very many well-meaning Christians, and I contend that to hold to that orthodox claim that the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is was created in a literal six literal 24-hour days is the most biblically consistent. I furthermore contend that to step into, in this case, the gap theory, is not simply some simple disagreement about origins, but rather, and and one that makes little difference as it relates to things that we can't know anyway, but rather that it actually can lend itself to a fundamental denial of more important and significantly more consequential doctrines and can end up casting doubt even upon the purpose and life and ministry of Jesus Christ himself if we're not careful. And if you followed my arguments today, you might have to listen to this again online in order to kind of wrap your mind around all the information that I put out. And if you find them compelling, then there's something very wonderful and something exciting about that. Not not that you found my arguments compelling, but if you take the argument that I have made today and if you if you agree with it or if you find it compelling. What that means is that you can very simply open your Bible, read the words that God gave you by inspiration, preserved from generation to generation, translated competently into the English by faithful and godly men, and you can trust them. And that's a really wonderful thought, isn't it? that you don't have to have a degree in Hebrew that you don't have to be able to parse all of the philosophies and ideologies that you don't have to spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours reading all of the spurious ideas but you can you can the the, the person who just got saved yesterday can open their Bible, can read, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light and he can say, oh, God created the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that in them is in six days and on the seventh day he rested. And you can believe it and you can trust it and yeah, someone can get up here and spend an hour telling you why and putting all of those pieces together. But at the end, if, if, if you have just opened your Bible and trusted it and believed it, you're actually walking away today without me having changed your mind about anything. That all of this time and effort, and believe me, it was a lot of effort that I put into writing the sermon, um, didn't actually change anything. And that's what I want. Like, that's what I hope. And for those of you that were not convinced, I hope that I've gone some way to convince you that the simple reading of, the, of, of Genesis 1 is, is, is the right, proper reading, the correct reading. What a wonderful thing. Not only do you not have to read between the lines of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, but the simple reading without reading between those lines is also the most consistent reading. It's not that you just don't have to do it. It's that it's the best. It's the safest. It's the one that makes the most sense. It compromises no doctrines. It conflicts with no deeper theological understanding. It properly reflects the gospel. It properly reflects the presence of sin and of death. It properly reflects our context of time, space, and matter as we see it and as we understand it. And you don't even need a degree in ancient Hebrew to get there. In our book, Sermon on Genesis, my primary point of application was that God wants you to know him. And there are things that happened in history that God has not seen to tell us, of course, seen fit to tell us. And we're going to run across those. And I'm going to have to stand behind this this pulpit and I'm going to have to put up my arms like this and say, I have no idea what happened there. But God has given us what we need to know, hasn't he? Now, for some of us, that frustrates us because we're curious. And we don't like the fact that there's a bunch of unknown stuff and our mind is constantly working into trying to fill those gaps. And yes, it can be frustrating for some, and I understand that. But God has, but, but, but don't allow the fact that God has not given us some things to compromise your conviction that God has given us what we need to know and your determination that you are going to believe it if God has said it. God forbid that we should start twisting things around that are clear, which I believe Genesis 1 is quite clear, in fact. God forbid that we would start twisting it around in order to compensate for the things that God has not told us about. God forbid that we should come to conclusions or theories and then try to bend the Bible around our conclusions and our theories rather than forming our conclusions and theories from the Bible. And that is what I leave you with today. I gave you a lot. I know it was confusing. If you have questions, come see me. But may we do that here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and not just here, but everywhere that we read the Word of God. Not to say that that there's not a place for study and for knowledge. I'm not saying any of that at all. But what I am saying is that God has told us what he wants us to know. And he's told it to us in the clarity that is necessary for us to find in the word of God consistency from beginning to end. And if the plain sense makes the most sense, then we don't need to seek any other sense. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.